Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 29 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am honored to welcome New York Times best-selling author, retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hampton as my featured guest. Hampton is one of the most decorated fighter pilots since the Vietnam War, awarded a Purple Heart, four Distinguished Flying Crosses with Valor, and eight Air Medals with Valor. Throughout his 20-year career, he flew 151 combat missions in the Middle East during both Gulf Wars. Hampton is author of titles that include Lords of the Sky, The Hunter Killers, The Flight, and Chasing the Demon. He holds a Master of Science in Aeronautics from Embry-Riddle University and speaks both French and Arabic. Hampton also frequently discusses foreign affairs and geopolitics on CNN, Fox News, the BBC, and NPR. But today, we'll be chatting about the Cold War era race to break the sound barrier and his 2018 book, Chasing the Demon, A Secret History of the Quest for the Sound Barrier and the Band of American Aces Who Conquered It. Hampton joins us from Vail, Colorado. Dan, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks, Bruce. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Happy to be here. First off, I just want to say thanks so much. You have an incredibly impressive list of honors for your wartime service. Thanks for your service to our country. Well, you're, you're quite welcome. It was kind of just what I did, but I appreciate it. Thanks. That's pretty amazing. Anyway, I also want to acknowledge the recent death of one of America's aviation icons, U.S. Air Force Brigadier General Chuck Yeager, retired. Uh, Yeager will forever be associated with the first accepted record for breaking the sound barrier in a test aircraft when he pushed the Bell X-1 to Mach 1.05 high over Victorville, California in October of forty-seven. Yeah, you asked if, uh, I think you your, your question is, is it a rocket plane or an aircraft, right? That's right, yeah. You know, it's it's sort of in a gray area, Bruce. It's an aircraft in that it, it flies and you can control it. Uh, you know, the pilot could physically fly it, which you really can't do with a rocket. On the other hand, its sole source of power were the rockets. So I guess it's a little bit of both. Uh, and just as an aside, the sound barrier... It's actually, and it's 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 uh, temperature dependent more than anything else. But at sea level on a dry day, at uh, I think standard temperature, which is sixty-eight degrees, I think the sound barrier is actually seven hundred and sixty-seven uh, miles per hour. It decreases as you go up because the air gets colder. Did you actually know Jaeger? Did you ever have a chance to meet him? Uh, I never met him in person. I talked to him a couple times, and we corresponded very briefly when I was writing this book. So let's set the stage uh, for the post-war race to break the sound barrier. Your book's title refers to the sound barrier as the demon. Thus, chasing the demon was a quest to break through this barrier. The uh, U.S. wanted to have fighters capable of supersonic speeds to take out long-range bombers before they could drop their nuclear weapons. Is is that the gist of it? Uh, yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. It really wasn't... Uh supersonic fighters to take out Russian bombers that triggered all this. It was the fact that we had the B-29 and it dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. And the Russians were very uh, upset about that and very worried about it. So this is what sort of triggered the next round of one-upsmanship. Who could go faster? Who could go greater distances? Who was capable of dropping uh, nuclear weapons from supersonic aircraft, which right now there were no supersonic fighters to intercept them. So that was looked on as a as a very big strategic advantage. So uh, kind of set the scene for us, because this all uh, this effort was all all began literally only a few months after the war. No, the research has actually been ongoing all all through the war. In fact, you know, the XP-59 was was built for the purpose of, of exceeding uh, the speed of sound. Uh, it was a jet, but, but you know, the, the U.S. was thinking that way. However, you have to remember that in the, and they made, a, they made the right decision. Our, our people made the right decision uh, as the war was progressing, which is, hey, all of this is fine and good, and we'll, we'll worry about it after the war, but we need to win the war with the technology that works. 
which is why they concentrated on piston engine fighters, you know, like the P-51 and, and others, and, and the jet and going supersonic. Those programs were all still viable and were still being looked into, but they weren't, they weren't at, at, as high on the list, obviously, as the war-winning options were. Now, as soon as the war ended, of course, all of that changed. Uh, because with the dropping of the of the atomic bombs on Japan, everybody who was who was anybody with a brain could see that that's where the future lay to prevent another world war. And that was that was what was behind all of this. You asked to set the stage. Um, you know, right after the war, you've got to remember that that uh, everything had changed. You know, uh, I think if I recall, thirty six percent of the workforce was now women. Um, all the veterans coming back had access to the GI Bill. Our, our industries that had been developed to win the war were being converted to civilian applications like cars instead of tanks, et cetera. Uh, so it was, America was really a booming, exciting place. The Marshall Plan, you know, they spent, uh, they spent $12 billion in 1946 you know, money overseas to rebuild Japan and Germany. I think 70, 80% of the infrastructure in those countries had been wiped out. So all of this was going on. And, and what we had run across real quickly was as soon as the war was over and the com common enemies of Japan and Germany were finished, our alliance with the Soviet Union fell apart. And we went back to sort of the status quo, which was communist socialism against everything else. And that became the new polarization of the world. So that's that's where our defense thinking was going. That's where the technology was going. That's what what people were were invested in in trying to create a brand new air force, these new weapons. And along with that, they realized, hey, now we need to pay attention to the jet fighter program and having airplanes go supersonic because we couldn't devote much time and money to it during the war. We're going to do it now. But uh, again, so the the the, the first uh, jet aircraft was being researched during the war, but the X one program officially did not start until after the war. Or am I wrong? On that? Yeah, it didn't. No, you're 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 correct. It it didn't uh, it didn't it didn't really get up and running until after the war. I think it was 1946 when Slick Goodland, in December of 1946, when Slick Goodland, uh, you know, uh, had the first powered flight in the X one. Oh, yeah, we're going to mention that. So early in your book, you note that during the last days of World War II in 1945, Germany, Lothar Sieber, a German Luftwaffe test pilot, climbed into a natter and uh, did a test flight and became the first human to fly a guided rocket, essentially. What it was a natter, N-A-T-T-E-R. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. What Was it? Plane? No, you are. Okay. It's a natter. Uh Oh, it's an awful little plane. There's there's two of them left in existence, and I actually went and, and climbed around and sat in one uh, at the Smithsonian Annex uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh -huh. um, it's an awful little thing. It's made out of plywood. <laughs> um, it only has it only has a few instruments in it, just enough for a, a pilot to be able to fly straight and level, and there was a fuel gauge. And it was basically rockets built around a tiny cockpit built around uh, a nose cone filled with all sorts of, of weapons, uh, pre preliminary or primarily uh, rockets to bring down heavy American bombers. That's what the NATO was supposed to do. They were supposed to, to blast it off. It would rocket up into these bomber formations, uh, rocket up past them, and then come back down at you know 600 kilometers per hour, fire all these rockets into our airplanes, and then descend down to land. So that did, was the idea behind it. Did it ever break the sound barrier itself? Not officially. Um, as I described in the book, uh, Siebert blasted off uh, one, on one mission to, to go do all this, and he went up into the clouds, and I think he got disoriented because the instrumentation in the Natter wasn't very good. And, and he, got, uh, you know, he got disoriented, and he ended up uh, inverted, and he came screaming back down through the clouds you know, at seven, 800 kilometers per hour. And witnesses said that they heard, you know, a huge baboom right before he impacted. Uh, it was never recorded. Remember, Germany was in its death throes right now, so they had other things to think about. But that has long been uh, posited as perhaps the first supersonic flight in an aircraft, albeit unintentionally. <laughs> okay. And then you note in the book that it was Austrian experimental physicist Ernst Mach 
who first gave a numerical value, value for velocity as it related to the speed of sound, and it was expressed in tenths up to the whole number 1.0, 1.0, which represented and still does supersonic flight. He figured this out with, the, with his classic textbook experiment using an 1887 image of a bow shock wave from a speeding bullet as it broke through the sound barrier. Uh, is that correct? Am I yeah, correct? That's, yeah, that's essentially what happened, and it, and it makes a nice segue into the X1 program, because if you look at an X1, it looks like a big bullet. And, and, you know, scientists, physicists, and inventors had known for a long time that a rifle bullet actually exceeds the speed of sound, right? Right. So why not design uh, the aircraft in its shape, which is why the X-1 looks like a, like a 50 caliber uh, uh, shell, because that's what it was designed after. Yeah. And so uh, in your book, the, con- the controversy around your book, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, you actually conclude, you personally conclude that George Welch may have beaten Jaeger to the sound barrier. Let's talk about Welch. He was a World War II fighter pilot who had studied mechanical engineering at Purdue University in Indiana. And and you write, was in Honolulu a few days before the attack on Pearl Harbor and uh, made quite an entrance (laughs) uh, to a party as an uninvited guest. Can you tell us that story? That's a a fun aside. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. He actually, um, he was commissioned in January of 1941 and went out to went out to Hawaii later on that year. Remember, our base in Pearl Harbor was was a pretty new thing. It was Roosevelt that moved the Pacific Fleet there from our west coast because he wanted it to be two thousand miles closer to Japan. Uh-huh. So there wasn't a whole lot built up, you know, at the time when Welch got there, and they weren't used to the influx of of military folks. Yeah, that story is there was a there was a, a big party at the uh, Royal Hawaiian Hotel there on Waikiki. And and he hadn't been invited, so he uh, went out to the beach, maybe, I don't know, half a mile, quarter of a mile up from the hotel, and he had his flying gear on and a parachute, and he, and he pulled the cord and the parachute yanked him out into the surf <laughs> and then drug, drug him down the beach, and he clambered out of the, out of the water uh, right there on the beach in front of this party, and they all thought he'd bailed out of an airplane. He didn't say he did. They just assumed that. I mean, what else would you think, right? And they invited him to the party, so he got to go to the party. Yeah, that's George Welch. And did quite well, I would assume, right? Okay. Yeah, and then, and then the Pearl Harbor story was, and this is, this is true, um, you know, they're, they're, both, they're both officers, so they were at the officers club on, on uh, Friday and, and Saturday nights. And at officers clubs, uh, you always dress if you don't wear a uniform. You Civilian uh, dinner wears or dinner clothing is quite appropriate, and he had a tuxedo on. Mm-hmm. He and uh, he and he and Ken Taylor, and they had come in maybe I don't know a couple maybe an hour hour and a half before dawn, a little bit hungover. They'd been up all night with the nurses and playing poker when the attack happened, and <laughs> they instantly processed what had happened. Didn't care how they were dressed, right? And uh, and and headed out to their airplanes. And he was wearing a khaki uniform shirt over his tuxedo pants. Good guy. Uh, when he when he was doing all that, yeah. How is flying a fighter jet at altitude with an adversary on your tail different than what we see on TV or in the movies? Is it all reflexes, or do you have time to think about strategy as well? That's that's a, a huge question. Um, I'll tell you that what you see on TV is is not realistic. Uh, you know, take the Pearl Harbor movie. Nobody dogfights at fifty feet through the hangars. That's that's absurd. Uh, also, um, you know, Top Gun. God love the movie. Great soundtrack. Good movie. But but aileron rolls are not a uh, not a tactic. Uh, but if they, if they really tried to film dogfighting the way it is, you'd never see anything. Right. Uh, it's it's too violent. It's too four dimensional. It's too fast. You know, so they, they do the best they can. I'm not knocking them. But no, it's it's really not like that. And so uh, when you were actually in battle in an aircraft, do you kind of operate on instinct or do you have time to, to think about what you're doing? Uh, I would say it depends. If somebody sneaks up behind you and shoots a missile or opens fire from a thousand feet, you don't have much time to think. You react. But you're very, very well trained. You've been through countless scenarios like that. Uh, to, to practice these things. So you have a, 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 an instinctive reaction, a trained reaction, and then you have a whole bag full of tricks that you've been taught. 
In other situations, you've got some time, maybe 30 seconds or a minute, as you are coming face to face with different kinds of threats to pick the best weapon, pick the best tactics and strategy. You go out the door always with a couple of plans, but those plans always change. So, you know, you adapt, you adapt and overcome any combat veteran will tell you that. And did you regularly, I assume you regularly broke the sound barrier or uh, I honestly, all the time. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what was an F-16 capable of flying at that point? Uh, F-16 will exceed two times the speed of sound at altitude. Okay. I think it's Mach 2.05. I've personally gone to Mach 2.01. But I'll tell you that there is no black hole. The music doesn't play. (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, you you don't see anything really screwy or weird. It's just, it's just a number. You know, um, I have felt a bump once in a while, depending on the uh, the atmospheric conditions. But most of the time, it happens, and you don't even know it happened. So anyway, back to Welch. Uh, you actually say right in the book that you think he probably uh, broke the barrier during a flight in the XP-86 aircraft in early October of 1947, <laughs> while Jaeger had officially broken the barrier on October 14th of 47. So uh, right. explain that why you think that is well well the xp86 was capable of it um the guy one of the guys who helped me write the book was actually chuck yeager's boss at one point he was a real test pilot named ken Schulstrom, um and he was the xp86 uh project pilot that's why ken Schulstrom didn't fly the x1 he didn't want to he wanted to fly the xp86 otherwise it would be him we're talking about right um but but he knew, and so did the designers, uh, and I detailed it pretty well in the book, why the XP-86 was capable uh, physically of breaking the sound barrier. Not in level flight, but in a descent. Uh, so, you know, you've got gravity working for you. It could do it. So, on October 1st, it was the XP-86 first flight uh, out at Edwards uh, with George Welch at the controls. And there were people... Uh, at Poncho's, which was the, uh, the the club, the hangout there, mm-hmm. who categorically asserted that they heard the baboon. Um, and, you know, this wasn't something as, as novel as you would think. It was in, in California, but we'd had some captured German rockets. I talked about this in the book, too, out in uh, New Mexico that had, had routinely broken. They broke the sound barrier every time they were launched. And so people knew what the sound meant, at least the scientists did. They knew what it meant. So when this came out later that they'd heard this on October 1st, you know, people people believed it. And why wouldn't George Welch do it? You know, I described him pretty well in the book. When you know more about him and how he thought, uh, he had the opportunity. He had the airplane. It was a perfect day for it. Why wouldn't he do it? You know? Uh, so, yeah, I believe I believe Welch did it before Jaeger. Okay. So um, did Welch actually, was he embittered about that, that he didn't get the credit? No, he didn't. He didn't care at all. In fact, he didn't. He was one of those guys that didn't really care about credit. He did things for himself, and this goes back to World War II, uh, and even in Korea when he when he fought in Korea, he didn't take credit uh, for 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 several kills uh, that he had because he just wasn't interested in that. That's or, not what motivated him. Right, and it's interesting uh, that so, to, to note that even uh, after uh, Jaeger officially broke the sound barrier. It wasn't until June of 48 that this was released to the to the media, to the general public, right? Yeah, which was kind of kind of squirrely because a magazine article came out that December, um, you know, talking about it. And then uh, a the British avi- test pilot. The Aviation Week. I think Aviation Week reported on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it was it was not a very well-kept secret, but they had reasons, you know, for – for doing what they did. And again, it goes back to politics and the Soviet union and the next big threat. So I, I don't blame them for that, but it was sort of an open secret. So tell us about the, the evolution of the X one. Uh, people were kind of surprised, you know, in your book that the contract for the X one went to bell. Uh, there was a guy named Larry bell who, uh, the air force chose to uh, actually chose his, his model, a uh, rocket plane or whatever you want to call it to break the, the, to break the sound barrier and reach beyond Mach 1. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you how it happened. It happened because of political reasons. 
uh, Bell was very well connected politically, and he he made the case that since Bell had built the the first jet, that they you know they were the natural contender to build this this rocket plane. That and I think Larry Bell personally believed that rockets were the future, uh, not aircraft. You have to remember this was at a time you mean you, you think about uh, the right stuff and and the space race. You know all that was was beginning to be discussed. And and uh, everybody was interested in going higher and faster and farther. Mm-hmm. We know now that that's probably not you know it, it it has limits and it's not really applicable on a battlefield in a lot of cases. But that's what they were interested in at the time. So he made the case. He was he was a salesman first first and foremost. All right, he had a, a pretty abysmal record with building airplanes. I mean the the Era Cobra from World War II was just a piece of junk. Um, except for the you know the Russians loved it. So what does that tell you? Uh, but but the American pilots that flew it hated it. He didn't have a, a great track record with that. The the uh, the, the jet that he built uh, had a lot of problems. It was just essentially an oversized Air Cobra. But he got the contract to to build the X one, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they they did it. Unlike in the movie, uh, you know Jaeger and and the boys didn't just walk out one morning and hop into it. I mean they'd been part of this program. Uh, for at least uh, you know several months before the summer before they were out there going through academics and getting training and everything else, so it wasn't as ad hoc as the movie made it out to be. But still, Bell would not have been uh, my first choice. Okay, and you're referring to the uh, the right stuff, the to- the adaptation of Tom. Yeah, Wilson. yeah, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the right stuff movie. Okay, yeah, another great soundtrack. The movie, you know, has some <laughs> details that aren't accurate, but who cares? It's a good show, right? So, um, and you write that the first uh, Bell X1 mock-up rolled out of the company's Wheatfield, New York factory at the end of uh, December of 45. By late uh, January of 46, was dropped from a B-29 flying at an altitude of 27,000 feet over central Florida. And Jack Willems, B- Bell's chief test pilot, made a safe four-minute flight in the X-1 from altitude down to the ground. And it was a glide flight with no engine. So that's, that's kind of shocking for the, for the average person who doesn't know about aerodynamics. But uh, so this thing could function both as a powered craft and also as a glider. Well, any, any airplane will glide. You know, they, some of them don't glide very well, uh, but, but, but they will glide. And it's, it's perfectly normal to do glide tests before powered flight tests to make certain that, hey, the aerodynamics I just worked out on paper you know, and we put into this prototype actually work before we put an engine in it. Um, because uh, gliders, gliders are very good platforms for studying aerodynamics. So that's, that's why they did that. And, they, and again, they wanted to make sure, you know, it was holding up structurally before they, they put the rockets in it. So that's why they did the glide. And then, um, ironically, before Jaeger even flew one, uh, you write that after taking a tour of the X-1 plant in New York State, <laughs> this, this is so, so him, I, I would think. I, don't, I didn't know the man, but you know, this is kind of what, what I'm led to believe he would say. He said, uh, we didn't walk too steadily when we left that hangar. That some bitch scares me to death. <laughs> That's what he said. Was he actually um, more scared than he led the public to believe? Uh, and I, I guess one reason was because there was no way that a pilot could bail out of an X-1 in case of a mid-air emergency. What, what was the thinking behind that, or was it just not possible? Well, the thinking behind it was, well, first of all, we hope nothing is going to go wrong, so you won't need to. Uh, second, the purpose of the airplane is as a test platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really, you know, the safety of the pilot, you know, isn't, isn't something that's a, a primary concern. I know that sounds cold and harsh, but that's just something test pilots especially then, you know, had to live with. You also have to remember that, the, and a lot of people don't know this, the, the X-1 was a civilian program until June of 1947. That's why Willems and Goodland, uh, you know, were doing the initial work on this. And that's normal, too. You have civilian test pilots associated with whatever company built whatever aircraft you're talking about. Mm-hmm. They do all the preliminary work and evaluation for this thing before you turn it over to the military test pilots who then evaluate it against what they asked for. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, Slick Goodland and, and, uh, and the other guys, especially Slick, cause he did the powered flight tests. 
they could have broken the sound barrier as early as, as you know, early, well, even late 1946 if they'd wanted to. Uh, it's the same airplane. Everything was the same. But for political reasons and contractual reasons, they didn't. It wasn't in their contract to exceed the speed of sound. And the military, specifically the brand new entity that was about to be created that we know of as the U.S. Air Force, wanted to be the ones to break the sound barrier officially. So the fact that Jaeger, Jaeger you know, even got to do it is, is incidental. You know, any of these guys could have done it at any time. As you mentioned earlier, Chow uh, Slick Goodland made the X-1's first uh, powered flight. Um, so in the cockpit of the X-1, you write that forward visibility is very limited. Uh, there's an A-shaped yoke um, and with nothing but four toggle switches which control the engine's four rockets which ran on ethyl alcohol, water, and liquid oxygen for only four minutes. And and then the four created, but the four were able to create uh, 6,000 pounds of thrust during that time. What do you recall about this first powered flight? That's, you know, that was, it was uneventful, you know. He, I think he only used uh, two of the rockets. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cockpit, like you described, is, is pretty primitive. Um, it's... Uh, the, the yoke is just a yoke. I, I don't remember writing A-shaped, but it's just it's just a yoke, which was a little disconcerting to most of the fighter pilots. H, H, H-shaped, H, oh, H, 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 yeah. H. Yeah, H. Yeah, it is H-shaped. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they're used to sticks, so they didn't like the, the yoke, but, you know, tough. Uh, they just had to, they had to learn to live with it. But, you know, it was, it was uneventfully, you know, he, he, they'd done all the glide work. They verified the aerodynamics they put the engines in it they did lots of test runs on the ground to make sure nothing vibrated apart mm-hmm. and then you know he took it out and lit off i think two of them and and flew for a few minutes and landed so by uh september of 47 after hitting 0. 0.945 uh, jaeger noticed quite a bit of buffeting what would have been causing this buffeting this goes into the problem the very basic problem that they were all confronting is what happens to air as you approach uh, the supersonic supersonic level. Uh, uh, Essentially, what he was encountering there in the 0.94, 0.95 Mach range is called the transonic region. And that's a very dangerous region. Uh, Before you go supersonic and after, it's smooth sailing. But in the middle there, while parts of the airplane are supersonic, parts aren't, there's pressure on different parts of the aircraft, on different tail surface, you know, on different surfaces, control surfaces. Because again, part of the airplane is supersonic, so part of it's transonic, part of it's subsonic. And this is what was was getting guys in trouble because it would act uh, strangely, adversely. There was no way to predict how it would act on control surfaces, and that's what caused the buffeting. Was was essentially variable pressures, uh, you know, acting all over the aircraft. So a day before uh, Jaeger's uh, famous flight, which is also a key plot point in the film adaptation of, of The Right Stuff, Jaeger and his wife, Glennis, go for a night horseback ride, and Jaeger hits a, a, a closed gate at full tilt and is thrown off the mm-hmm. horse and ends up with three broken ribs. And as you note, worried that he wouldn't be able to close the X-1's hatch on his next flight, he improvises with a 10-inch wooden handle which enables him to shut the latch. Uh, and, of course, his superiors knew nothing about this. What's the story behind it? What's, what's the real story behind this? Well, that's it's mostly true. Uh, I think in the movie they showed him getting hit by a, a cactus branch or something. But what I put in the book is what happened. He, he was riding back into ponchos uh, uh, probably after a few drinks and didn't realize that the, that the stall, the gate was shut. Uh-huh. And so he hit it and came off of it and broke his ribs. Um, they took him. Uh, they took him to a doctor. The doctor taped him up, I think. But he couldn't, like he, like I said, and like they showed in the movie, he couldn't. He couldn't reach over to shut it. So he did, in fact, improvise a, a handle. And the only one who knew about it was Jack Ridley, because uh, even in 1947, you know, you're not going to fly with three broken ribs unless you're in combat, which he wasn't. So uh, they would have. They would have stopped him from flying. So amazingly, he reached the uh, Mach 1.05, as I mentioned earlier, and he landed on the dry lake bed only 14 minutes after being released uh, from the bottom of the B-29. 
So was the X1 actually attached to the bottom of the fuselage or was it on the right wing? I've forgotten. No, it's on the bottom. It's on the, it's on the absolute bottom. Uh, but as, as I yeah, asked, they built a they, they built a special uh, revetment, you know, in the runway, and they would put the air the the bomber up on jacks, and then they would lower it up into. They modified the bomb bay essentially, so the X one would more or less fit up against it. Okay, but as I also remember from the right stuff, uh, once the pilot once the test pilot was transferred from the B twenty nine and into the X one. There was no getting back into the B-29 in case of an emergency. No, they could have. He could have opened it up again and gotten out. Oh, okay. Uh, but there was no way to, there's no way to bail out of it. Um, you know, if, if the, if the B-29 had an emergency and I was sitting in the cockpit of the X-1, I would just jettison, I would release uh-huh. and fall clear. Of it. You know, I wouldn't get back into an airplane that had something wrong with it. Jaeger called his 22nd supersonic flight. A poke through Jello. <laughs> yep. Uh, is that is that kind of what it feels like? I mean, it's just nothing. Well, it might have felt like that to him. It doesn't feel like it. Any, it doesn't feel like it. You know, in a in any of the jets I flew. Like I said, it's just a number. Mach one is just a number. Just a number. Once you get through the once, yeah, once you get through the transonic region, and you don't even feel that in modern air, aircraft. But in his airplane, that was the bumpy ride right up to the point where you hit Mach 1. And then once you're there, you're there. Everything is supersonic, so the airflow goes back to more or less normal. So you write that uh, Jaeger celebrated by getting drunk, riding off on his motorcycle in the dark, where he eventually ended up sprawled on his back in the road. And, you know, we kind of laugh at such behavior. You mentioned ponchos, which was a local watering hole. This X-1 test program was really a pressure cooker and... And we have to also remember that these guys had just come out of a world war. Well, I think more than anything, they were worried about, well, they were worried about dying because nobody really had done it for real, not in a planned methodical method or approach like they were doing now. Um, more of this was, you got to remember, these guys, these guys were, were born after World War I. They grew up during the Great Depression. And, you know, that's when they came of age and then a world war hits them in the face. So these are these are tough guys. These are guys that have, you know, we, we think we have it tough today with our little, you know, with our coronavirus pandemic. And I'm not minimizing that, of course. But, you know, compared to 20 years of, of the roaring 20s, the Great Depression and then World War II, you know, I would I would say they had it a little rougher. So the fact that they lived through all of that and are now here, of course, they're going to you know, they're going to party hard. They've lived hard. They survived. You know, they're going to, those, that's who they were. And, you know, combat pilots as a rule, uh, you know, they, they still feel that way. At least I hope they do. You know, you, you've, you've got to have a certain type of person to do that job. And these guys all had it or they wouldn't be test pilots. Now, as far as the X-1 program being a pressure cooker, I, I, you know, except for the, the very real possibility of dying every day, I don't think it was that much of a pressure cooker. It's not like they had to write lengthy technical test reports and, and other things. And when they weren't flying, you know, they were free to do, you know, other things for the most part. Um, I think it was more just, as you said, you know, two years after the war ends, they're still trying to get their lives together. A lot of them had been divorced. They're trying to find, you know, a new wife. They're out in the middle of this hole in California that nobody likes called Edwards, which is why they all hung out at Poncho's. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's just, that was just life then there. It was sort of like the wild, wild west with wings. <laughs> right. Okay. Interesting enough about ponchos, uh, during the filming of the right stuff, uh, the real Chuck Yeager actually played a bartender who worked at, the at, at the bar that's at true. ponchos. Yeah. Yes. A, a little, little cameo in there. Yep. That's true. So, uh, I guess I, he also did a lot of commercials in his later years uh, for Delco batteries, if you remember. Um, yeah, batteries. Right. But when when he when Chuck Yeager was doing, he was kind of showboating before he he did this this uh, famous uh, flight to actually break the barrier. What, was that showboating, or was he kind of trying to test the limits of the of the X one for for his own? No, that's just that's just Yeager. He was, and he was never he was never really a test pilot. Okay, uh, he he didn't have the technical or educational background for it, which is why Jack Ridley was always with him because Ridley was a superb pilot and uh, uh, an aeronautical engineer. He was an air, he was an expert. 
So they sent Ridley along with Jaeger to make sure that, you know, he could explain the aerodynamics to him and, and maybe keep him from saying stupid stuff to reporters because Jaeger just didn't have the background for it at all. Um, and so him flying that that way uh, is not what a test pilot would do. You note that, that Goodland and the Bell guys, the Bell test pilots, never did any of that. They were professionals. And they actually had a very dim opinion of Chuck Yeager uh, for doing some of this. They couldn't believe it the first time, you know, when he dropped any any aileron rolled it. Mm. Um, because test, test profiles are very strict for a reason. One reason is, is that you don't really know what the airplane can and can't do because it's that's why it's, it's going through tests, right? Right. That's why you're that's why you're testing it. Uh, and the other reason is you structure tests so that you have a, a baseline to work against. You know, you, you can say categorically these things are the same, you know, for every flight. And that's how we measure the things we're testing against them because we have we have uh, constants. And Jaeger, you know, doing his cowboy act just really infuriated them. And it, and it skewed, you know, it, it caused the test program to be stretched out a little bit because they had to go back and redo some of the stuff that he, that he cowboyed. So, you know, the, the, the image of, of Jaeger doing that and, you know, Maverick Mitchell and Top Gun, people like to think that, that fighter pilots are, are cowboys because of the way we act in bars. <laughs> and in bars, I would say we are, but in an airplane, I have never known a professional fighter pilot or test pilot who wasn't deadly serious um, because that's, that's, what you, that's what you do. You know, you're a taxpayer. Do you want do you want the government turning over a hundred million dollar fighter to some guy who's going to do aileron rolls near the control tower? No. So you know, it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Also, in the real world, you, you lose your wings for that. Nobody wants to, you know, throw something you've worked several years on down the toilet for for being stupid. So Jaeger doing that really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, including the military head of the test program. Right, and I would assume in today's Air Force or the Navy that uh, pilots like that would probably probably be quickly weeded out, right? Yeah, you wouldn't get to be a pilot. You you know, if you pulled that crap in in flight school, you'd be you'd be tossed out. Um, you know, we're we're not choir boys by any stretch of the imagination, but one thing we all take seriously is flying. Right. And and no nobody responsible for test flying would do something like that. So how difficult was the X one to handle to fly? Jaeger obviously mastered it pretty quickly. I don't, you know, I never flew it, obviously, but I, I don't think so. Um, I think it was tough to handle in the transonic region, but any airplane was at that point in time. So Jaeger's stick and rudder instincts, you know, served him well, uh, you know, keeping the plane under control during the transonic bumpy buffeting uh, region. But as I pointed out, Slick Goodland or any of the other uh, test pilots that had flown this could have done the same thing. It just happened to be Jaeger. Um, you know, and once you're supersonic, it's, it's, it's no big deal. It's actually very smooth. And then, you know, landing the thing, you got to be kind of careful with, cause you, you really don't have any power left to go around if you screw up the landing. But on the other hand, you've got the whole dry lake bed to land in. So how could you mess that up? <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So the whole X1 program from Washington's point of view was a good excuse for, for the Air Force to secure funding to make a name for itself within the branches of the services by breaking the sound barrier and piloted flight, or at least that's uh, what I kind of gleaned from your book. Was that is that accurate? Kind of an accurate assessment that they were looking. Yeah. At? Okay. Yes, yeah. Stuart Symington was the first Secretary of the Air Force, and the Air Force came into being officially in in September. But everybody knew it was coming. And, and that's why the civilians uh, were told, you will not under any circumstances break the sound barrier. You will not under any circumstances you know, exceed Mach 1 because they wanted the, the military wanted to do it to give itself uh, a boost. You know, and, and that's okay. They're the ones paying for it, so why shouldn't they, why shouldn't they get the credit for it? I don't have a problem with that. Right. You know, that's just, that's just the, that's real politics. That's how it works. You, know, you, you follow the funding trail, and if the Air Force... And there were a lot of doubters at the time that the Air Force should be its own service. And so the Air Force needed this to say, hey, look, look what we did. We have a supersonic airplane. We went faster than Mach 1. This is just the beginning of what we can do. So, you know, open up your pocketbooks for our, our 1948 budget. <laughs> so what did the what were the Soviets doing during 
the the period from say the end of war uh, of World War Two in forty five to the beginning of forty eight. What, what kind of research were they doing for their own supersonic efforts? Well, they were uh, they were testing uh, jets and MIGs. Uh, I think they tested the MIG nine, uh-huh. um, which is an awful little little airplane. They were building rockets too. Um, you know, they were they were trailing behind us generally. They hadn't. Uh, they hadn't detonated a, a, an atomic bomb yet, so the fact, the idea that we were going to go super, you know, be able to go supersonic, and then very quickly thereafter probably produce a supersonic bomber that could carry a nuclear weapon, uh, uh, you know, it, it obviated everything that they were doing defense-wise. You know, they they realized that they can't stop supersonic high-altitude bombers carrying nuclear weapons with the airplanes they have, so that's what triggered the arms race. And then, of course, when they went faster, we had to go faster. When they went higher, we had to go higher. And that fed into the, the space program, which is why the space program was, was so important, because the Soviets, the Soviets wanted to control and dominate as, as much as they could. And they looked at the space program as, as the, ultimate, you know, the ultimate weapon. You know, if they, could, if they could put armed spacecraft, which is pretty far-fetched, you know, in orbit over the United States, who, who cares how fast the Americans can fly if we can do that? You see where I'm going? Yeah, absolutely. So they, you know, it's just, it's, it's a typical arms race, arms race, leapfrog, you know, I can do this better, you can do that, you know, that, that sort of thing. And it turned into a very long, expensive, you know, process that finally ended in the 90s when they bankrupt themselves because they could never really, truly keep up with us. In the near term, what that did, though, was it set the Soviets to developing to develop uh, supersonic missiles, surface-to-air missiles, what we call SAMs, and that you know was a big shock to us in Vietnam because we hadn't really been working on that. We've been working on the aircraft. The Soviets had kind of realized, well, we're not really winning that race, but we're going to win the race in shooting them down. So let's develop surface-to-air missiles. Anybody with a with a with a decent idea, or at least who could present a decent idea on these weird, fantastical weapons, could probably get funding for it because everybody was jumping at anything. Right. You know, think about it in our terms. Think about the coronavirus and the vaccine. You know, if 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 people were coming up with ideas for a vaccine, the government would have just thrown money at them over the last six months to develop it. Right. Well, it's the same idea here. The big threat was the Soviet Union and the Red Scare and the menace, you know, from the East and all that. And so we were willing to throw huge amounts of money at any project that would give us an edge. And so obviously today we're in the era of hypersonic weaponry. The leading powers are all pursuing this. And depending on who you ask is uh, depending on the answer you get about who's ahead. You know, do you follow do you follow the hypersonic weapon development yourself? Oh, a little bit. I mean, I you know, I, I know a, a bit about it, and it's it's really not as it's not a new thing. You know, we we had we had airplanes back in the '60s that were capable of going many times past the speed of sound, which would qualify as as hypersonic flight. Um, they were prime. They were usually used for for um, uh, spy planes, surveillance planes. You know, think about the Blackbird. And there were others too, okay, uh, that the, the public didn't really know much about. Uh, I think hypersonic qualifies above Mach five, but you know there were there were guys that were doing that back in back in the sixties. It just it went it, it was always a dark program. It was always kept quiet for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't translate to the conventional wars that we were fighting at the time in in Korea, Vietnam, and then the Gulf Wars. You know you can't you can't really fight at hypersonic speeds, not yet. So they were very useful for what they were doing, spying on the bad guy, you know, getting in and getting out before anybody could react. But they didn't have a lot of applicability to to real tactical operations, which is the same argument that I, get, I spoke to in the beginning, you know, during World War II. That's why they were concentrating on piston airplanes and conventional weapons versus atomic bombs and jets and going supersonic because they still had to fight conventional wars. So why has uh, supersonic passenger flight kind of been in stasis uh, for the past three decades? Aside from, I think it was. Go ahead. I think it was cost more than anything. Right, the economics of it, not the not the, yeah, the economics. You know, the sheer, the you know, maintaining it and and the cost of fuel and and everything. You know, it was it was a really neat thing. You know, when it first came out, 
and everybody was enamored with it because because it was you know you could go supersonic it's cool you you get there before you start if you go the right direction uh <laughs> but but the economics of it were just was always was always hard to justify and you know i i never flew on the concord but i heard the seats were actually kind of small and kind of cramped and and you know when i fly across the ocean i like to go first class and relax and stretch out and you couldn't do that in a concord so <laughs> Um, you know, will it come back, you know, at some point, maybe, maybe if the economics, you know, get better and, and they can do it logistically, they will, uh, I'd say they have their own problems right now. with just normal conventional commercial flights. Well, there, there was a company called Arion, which has an SST business jet that was about to hit the market. Uh, right. I don't know how the pandemic has affected that. And then there was a company in the UK that had a new, that has a new uh, prototype for, uh, for a, a passenger SST, and um, but we really haven't seen a viable replacement for the Concorde. And of course, the Concorde, as you mentioned, even in its heyday, never made money for either the Air France or uh, or uh, British Airways. It was just uh, kind of a uh, oh yeah a marquee the, the, component. Yeah, you know, it was it was for show. It was for marketing. It was it was a novelty. But right, uh, you know, the costs are just prohibitive. I mean, the F sixteen that I flew and the F twenty two wasn't much different. You know, just the operating costs of, of a single-seat fighter like that are upwards of fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars an hour. Okay, Good uh, and and the thing about going supersonic, I mean, I told you the F-16 could go over Mach two. The problem is you can't sustain it very long because you run out of gas. I mean, you you know you you, you drink fuel pretty quick when you're going that fast. Right. And so you know the Concorde. I'm still not sure how they how they made the Concorde even work the way they did because they had to be pretty short of fuel every time they, they landed because most of that airplane was a fuel tank, you know, and they, they were still, they were still kind of running out, you know, as, as they were coming into land a lot of times. So, right. Um, if, if they solve that problem, then maybe it'll come back until then, you know, who knows? So what about the era of the space plane? Do you think space planes will actually leapfrog a new generation or next generation of, supersonic transport the suborbital space planes well i think i think they're good for if they can make it work again i think it's an interesting idea for logistics for transporting things um as far as you know my field which was which was combat um you know maybe it gets you across the world a lot quicker and you don't have to air refuel nine times like i did (laughs) But they've got a lot of bugs to work out. I'm all for new technology as long as it's practical and and doesn't doesn't hurt the existing stuff that we need to win today's wars. You have to always plan for the future, but you can't sacrifice an advantage now betting on some futuristic possibility that might not work out. What surprised you most after writing this book about the whole effort to break the sound barrier? I think I was surprised most about the um, the number of people who who were just adamant that it had to have been Jaeger. You know, that's that's what the movie said. So it has to be right. You know, uh, unfortunately, we live in a, a culture that if you see it on TV or the internet or it's in a movie theater, the average person thinks, well, it's that it has to be right. <laughs> you know, it, it has to be the truth. <laughs> and and you and I both know that's just not that's not true. Um, I was surprised at the the number of people that were just vehement that that no, there's just no way it had to be Jaeger because he was so great in that movie. And you're like, well, that actually wasn't Chuck Yeager; that was Sam Shepard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and it's a good story, but you know, here's here are the real facts behind it. And by the way, I, I talked to a 96 year old guy uh, who was part of all this, and that's where this came from. So you know, you you can't disagree with somebody who was there really. And what normally went through your head every time you took off in one of those F-16s? Uh, you know, I was, I was busy. I was always busy from start to finish. Uh, at, at, even at, you know, cruising speeds of 350 miles an hour, that's still pretty quick. And tactical air speeds are a lot faster. And there's, there's you know, every pound of gas is spoken for in training or in combat. And training isn't much different than combat, at least the way fighter pilots do it. So, you know, I was always I was always thinking ahead, which is, you know, something you have to master when you're when you're flying that fast. And there's always something to be doing and always, you know, something to be planning for all the way through all these flights. 
So I, I was always preoccupied. You know, I was I was a flight leader pretty early, and then I became an instructor pretty young. So I more or less was always kind of out in front. So I was responsible for lots of people, and I I didn't want to get anybody hurt unnecessarily, and I always wanted to to fulfill whatever mission I was doing at the time. So what did the your whole experience in flying the F sixteen and and your combat experience? What did you take from What did you take from that that you've applied to your day-to-day life today? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I would say that, that the ability to multitask and do 50 things at once in an airplane, uh, translates pretty well into normal life. You don't have to, you don't have to do that many, but you know, the ability to do lots of different things to when something bad happens to instantly react and have a plan for, okay, how to cope with that. These are all things that translate uh, well into the civilian world. One thing that doesn't, though, was the speed. I think the, the most frustrating part of, of everything was every day when I would come down and I'd drive home. <laughs> I'm used to thinking at, you know, four or 500 miles an hour, and now I'm stuck in traffic at 30 miles an hour with, pe- with people who can barely handle that. So that was always kind of frustrating. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm glad I did it. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I think about some of the things I did, and I wonder how I survived. Uh, but every single day, I'm glad I did. So, Dan, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment and learn more? Absolutely. Uh, the publisher of that book uh, put has an author Facebook page for me. Um, I think it's Dan Hampton Author. Uh, you can always get a hold of me. I will always, I will always answer. It may take me a while because I, I travel a good bit, but I always answer people. I always love to hear things. You know, I've always tried to write the perfect book, but somebody always finds at least one misspelled word or I'm missing a period here or something. So uh, I'm always grateful for that. I'm frustrated, but I'm grateful. <laughs> and I, I like to, I like to talk to people, you know, who, who, who tell me what they didn't know, or maybe they learned something from something that I wrote that always makes me feel, feel good. So please encourage people to do that. And if they, if they like any of the books, uh, if they have time to give me a quick Amazon review, that's always appreciated. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be long, but if, if they like the books, uh, that's, that's always something that uh, sits well with any author. So as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Dan Hampton, thanks so much for helping us better understand our earliest efforts to break the speed of sound. Oh, it's my pleasure, Bruce, anytime, and thanks for the invitation. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>